We're continuing in our series on the book of Romans. Today we're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And I would encourage you to, uh, to pull out your Bibles and to read along with me. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth truth about God for a lie and worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, the, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would would remove um, the scales from our eyes and from our heart that we would respond to your word, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we might come to know and embrace a righteousness from you and not rely on our own righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of introduction, I'd like to encourage you as we read, as we preach on the book of Romans to, uh, to understand that Romans... Is a, is a tight logic that the Apostle Paul begins in chapter 1 and he weaves his way in a, in a very, uh, very thoughtful, systematic way. And um, I would encourage you, for instance, to, to go and read Romans chapter 1 through 11 in one sitting. You can do it. It's possible to do it. And I think you'll understand how the Apostle Paul makes his argument. Um, and then read from chapter 12 to the end of the book in another sitting. 
Uh, But some of the questions that Paul raises, theoretically, in one section, he answers in the next chapter or chapter after that. And some of the questions that you might have, uh, Paul, why are you saying that? Oftentimes he answers that later. So uh, that's just an encouragement for you to do a little bit of uh, Bible study or at least Bible reading on your own in preparation for this series. Last week we looked at um, what was, what is the... It's been called the summary statement for the book of Romans, and it's in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you'll recall we talked about that this was the description, the revelation of a, an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther would say about the, this particular righteousness of God or righteousness from God. It's not a righteousness we, we do. It's not a righteousness we possess because uh, somehow we're good enough to do it or even that God has willed in us to do good things and so we are righteous in his sight. No, it is a righteousness that is been achieved by somebody else outside of us, Jesus, the righteous one, who committed no sin. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it is a righteousness, as the Apostle Paul says, that we receive by faith. Jesus did it for us, and we simply acknowledge our unrighteousness and that we need a righteous record before God and that as a gift we receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we begin here with the, the verse 18. So the question that you'd ask after reading verses 16 and 17 is, why do I need a righteousness from God? Why isn't my righteousness good enough? And it's because I'm unrighteous. And as a result, uh, what have I earned? Well, Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Mm. The wrath of God, that's not a good thing. Um, Now, we'll begin right here. By the way, today there'll be some controversial things in this passage. And so I would encourage you, uh, if you are offended, to to wait all the way through the end of uh, the sermon And you'll find that this passage is an equal opportunity offender. Everybody has reason to be offended by this passage here today. And we start with this concept of the wrath of God. Not a concept in our culture that people like to to think. They don't necessarily believe it's true. They believe that maybe God is a loving God and God is a merciful God and God is a gracious God. And of course he is. He's all those things. But he's... He's multifaceted. He's also a God of justice. He's a holy God, and the Bible reveals him as a wrathful God as well. When we think of wrath or anger, we, even as Christians, we can kind of recoil at that because we can project to God what human beings are in their anger. They can fly off the handle. And the Bible says of God that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is not moved by passions and emotions like we are. Um, You know, God is not hangry. You know the term? 
You know, you, uh, some of you kids, you know, you'll be like, yeah, I got to ask mom or dad this, or I have to tell them about something, maybe this grade I got at school today, and I'm going to wait till after they've had dinner. Uh, maybe a little food on their stomach would help their mood a little bit. God is not like that. He's not subject uh, to those, those physical weaknesses. And God always responds uh, in justice, right? He, he responds in justice, uh, and that's why he's wrathful. He does not uh, respond, for instance, from selfish reasons. He's not angry uh, because his ego has been bruised. You know, we want there to be a God of justice who rights the wrongs that are not dealt with in this world. As people, um, <clears throat> people hurt people, people violate uh, trust with people, that there would be justice, uh, that God would come um, and would right the wrongs of our, our world. We think of uh, an example, the brutal, brutal dictator Idi Amin who for eight years ruled in Uganda, and uh, countless people uh, were murdered as a result. The the low estimates are 80,000 deaths, and more likely it was around 300,000 deaths, and Amnesty International puts it at 500,000 deaths uh, during the reign of Idi Amin. And eventually he was exiled. While he was on his deathbed in a hospital in Saudi Arabia, his wife contacted the then president of Uganda, and asked if he might be able to come home and die in his homeland, to which the president answered that if he came to Uganda, that he would immediately answer and be held accountable for his sins. Well, a month later, he died in Saudi Arabia. So did Idi Amin answer for his sins? Yes, that there will be justice for Idi Amin's sins, that all of our sins, all of the sins of the world, all of the offenses will receive judgment by God. Uh, either we will receive judgment or Christ will receive judgment on our behalf in his court. Now let's get a little bit closer to home. We think about people doing things to us. Maybe our, somebody runs into our car and leaves and doesn't, doesn't tell us or Somebody steals something from us or embezzles something from our company. And uh, what do we want? We want, it, we want justice. We want something to be done to this violation that has happened to us. Um, when is it that we don't want justice? Well, when we do something. We want, we want grace. We don't want justice in that regard. But... The Bible says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, in terms of those who have uh, done something to us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The uh, Presbyterian Church USA, not our denomination, um, in what has become sort of a well-known event, um, they were putting together their hymnal. And there was the famous Getty Townend song, In Christ Alone, that makes reference to, and on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to remove that line and replace it with, on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, the love of God was magnified, and it was magnified on the cross when Jesus died. 
When Jesus died for us on the cross, he received the wrath that we deserved. And that was the greatest expression of God's love for us. They didn't allow that to be changed uh, from uh, line under because it was integral uh, to what they were saying in the hymn. So make no mistake, all evil will be punished by a just God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, some of God's wrath will be experienced when we die. The, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and some of it will be in judgment in hell. Um, but also what we see here in this text is that even now, human beings are beginning to experience the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's being revealed in our sin and our unrighteousness. Now, in this passage, who are the unrighteous? Consistently, all the way through, there's a pronoun used, they or them, they or them, they or them. Everything that's in here is they or them. It, nothing changes. And um, who is the they? Well, they are us. This is us. This is all humanity. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of Men and women, uh, sorry, you're not off the hook. This is generic of all human beings. This is a description of humanity. And so we find here that, first of all, we are truth suppressors. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth about God that is revealed by God about himself in creation. Romans 1, 19 through 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There is a suppression of the truth of the revelation that God gives to all people in all of creation. In Acts chapter 14, 17, the Apostle Paul is addressing a Gentile audience, not anybody that has received God's word, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah. And he says, yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The theological term for that is general revelation, that there is special revelation that God gives to us in his word, but general revelation is something that he gives to every single person through the creation. He reveals something of who he is, what his character is like. And as we'll find out next week, he also reveals something of uh, the law written on our hearts, that, that everybody has some concept of right and wrong. People all over the wor world know that murder is wrong, even if they don't possess the Bible. And so no one comes into this world as an atheist. Everybody 
has been revealed the truth of God, that he exists, that he uh, sustains, that he is the creator. And so they must suppress the truth. They must work at it in, in order to deny God. I know that God exists. I know certain things about God, and yet I do not honor him as God. I do not give thanks for what he's given to me. My thinking is diluted. My heart has become darkened, and that is what drives me. And so our ungodliness and our unrighteousness referred to in verse 18 is a response to this suppression of God's revealed truth to us. Our our unrighteousness is not simply some violation of some objective standard, though it is objective. It is a response to God himself where we are rejecting God. We are rejecting what he has revealed to us in Scripture. We have suppressed it, and therefore we're culpable. Everybody on the planet is culpable because they have suppressed the truth that God has given us. And therefore, we become idolaters. Verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why is it that they became fools? What's foolish about it? You look at the moon, you look at the stars, you look at the wonder of creation, you are in awe. And what makes sense? God's revealed himself to you. You worship the God that made all of these things. But no, people are foolish. They worship the thing that God has created rather than God himself. Now, idolatry can take many different forms. It may be that that you have a statue in your, uh, in your room that you worship. There are people that do that. Um, but you can also worship an idol in different ways. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Anytime we serve the creation rather than the creator, we are an idolater. O mighty Ford 150, you are my all in all. O child that I must have, or my life is not worth living. O spouse that I must possess or keep, my life is not worth living. Whatever it is, whatever, often good gifts from God that he gives to us, the creation, if we make our life about sustaining and keeping and and that's the organic. It's the only way that, that my life has meaning. I worship the creation rather than the creator. So it means I'm responsible because God has revealed. I have suppressed the truth. I've begun worshiping the creation. And so God begins to reveal his wrath. How does he begin to reveal his wrath? He begins to reveal his wrath by giving us over to our sinful desires now, you understand what this says, that, that God has a restraining hand on human beings, that God prevents us from being as sinful and evil and unrighteousness as we can be. That God, if, if, he, if he does not, he gives us over to be what it is that we would be in completeness. If, if God did not restrain the evil in this world, 
uh, we wouldn't last a week. And so God gives us over, and as he does, his wrath, that's one of the ways that we experience the wrath of God, by giving us, in here verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is ever blessed, who's blessed forever. Amen. And what we see here in the first case is sexual immorality, that God, um, God begins to give us up, gives humanity up into sexual immorality. And we find oftentimes in Scripture there is a connection, a, an, an explicit connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. For instance, Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, it's a reference to the Israelites uh, in their wilderness wanderings. And while they lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And he goes on to say, as part of his wrath of rejecting him, God gave them over to homosexual lusts and actions. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, why is it that the Apostle Paul at this point is highlighting homosexuality and lesbianism as an example of God giving them over uh, to depravity? Well, Paul's been talking about the creation. He's been talking about God revealing himself in creation, revealing Uh, revealing uh, who he is and, as we'll find out, what he requires. And the language here, this particular section, uh, harkens back to the language of creation, of Genesis, when Paul uses the, the terms for male and female. Now, we think that's not that unusual, male and female. It is, it is actually quite unusual in the New Testament. There are Uh, general terms, general words for that in the, in the Greek uh, that he uses time and time again. But, uh, but this is a rare occurrence in, um, in the Bible here. And so we know that it's referring back to, uh, for instance, Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same words that are used here in Romans chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, again speaking of creation. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. We find that it's only that only occurs four times the the word for male the phrase male and female those words 
Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Again, this is a quote back from the Old Testament. It's a parallel passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. The only other occurrence besides Romans 1.27 is Galatians 3.28, where Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In which he's saying there are distinctions that we have, but regardless of our distinctions, we have a unity for all those who are followers of of Jesus Christ. So God has revealed male and female distinctive in creation, even without the need for the Bible, right? Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 speaks of natural relations and those things that are contrary to nature. Men gave up natural relations with women. And what he's saying is you just look around at the created order in Not to put it too indelicately, but there is natural apparatus for males and females that fits the purpose. And it's not simply for a reproductive purpose. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that God said that it is not good for man to be alone. So he created them, male and female, Adam and Eve. And so in the most uh, intimate way, they had a companionship uh, as, uh, through, sex, uh, through sexuality. Um, and so we know that um, the Bible says that, that a husband-wife relationship in that context, that sex is good in uh, his idea and his design and, um, and incredibly helpful and incredibly constructive. And outside, any time that is exhibited outside that, it is destructive and sinful. And he says, in fact, here, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25, they gave he gave them over to the desires and actions contrary to nature. And then he completes that section by saying, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, the allowing them to uh, to participate and to fall into um, sexual immorality is in fact how God is expressing his wrath currently. But you know, and, and, and what he's saying is, and again, why is he highlighting this? Because it should be obvious that it is contrary to the created order. Uh, we, should, we should at least be able to observe the created world and see that this is true. But no, uh, no, it's, it's not in our day and age. Uh, in fact, it's seen as very enlightened. Um, sexual immorality in particular and homosexuality, sexual uh, immorality in general and homosexuality in particular is seen as very enlightened. And so I just want to say to, to uh, the congregation, those that are um, watching, is to uh, just to understand that that all forms of sexual uh, perversity have been uh, practiced all throughout the history of humanity. There's nothing particularly enlightened about this. Um, and there are things that even in our day and age would have been considered to be very, are considered to be um, abhorrent and would have been practiced in the past. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not enlightened. 
The Apostle Paul is expressing what he sees going on presently and condemning it. In our day and age, there are many who call themselves church leaders that advocate for gay marriage. Um, And they've got to explain away the text of Romans and other texts in the Bible that clearly speak about the sinfulness of homosexuality. They've got to employ kind of a pretzel logic to make this uh, true. And so I've seen this as a pastor uh, probably since about 1990, I think, is when I first saw um, published something from a church that tried to explain away what God was saying here in Romans chapter 1. Um, and there are any number of ways that, that people try to do that. The, one of the most um, popular ways is to say, well, the Apostle Paul is, what he's referring to here is he's referring to idolatry. And so the, the homosexuality is in relationship to the idolatry, where, where it's expressed uh, in idolatrous um, contexts, it's wrong. But in other contexts, it's not wrong. But we find here that the Apostle Paul is not simply talking about idolatry. He's in a detailed way talking about exchanging natural relationships, right? He's talking about desire. He's talking about being consumed with passion and that which is contrary to the created order. He talks about giving them up to dishonoring their bodies, And so you'll hear church leaders and others make a case for gay marriage. And they often say something like this. There are only six or seven passages in the entire Bible that speak about homosexuality. And my response is, yes, there are six or seven passages that clearly speak about homosexuality with with much clarity, directly speaking to the subject. And again, for those... If, you're, if you've heard this, if you're thinking through this subject, I want to say just do a comparison with other forms of sexual immorality in the Bible and find out uh, which is clearly spoken to, directly spoken to, adultery, very, very clearly spoken to, homosexuality, that is very clearly spoken to. Well, go and look at rape, for instance, something that we would all consider to be very bad and very clearly um, uh, condemned in Scripture, and look and see what is more directly spoken to, and you'll find that homosexuality is. Why is that? Is it worse? No, not saying that at all. What I am saying is, if you can twist the logic of, of this and other passages, then you can twist the logic of just about any sexual immorality in Scripture to make what is clearly wrong right. So don't be deluded by apostate churches. Don't be deluded by apostate preachers. You know, what is it that makes a church apostate? You know, one way is that when we take some cardinal doctrine of Scripture and we deny it, when somebody denies the Trinity or somebody denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, But another way we do that is when people deny when God says, because of these things, my wrath is coming. When we deny that, then we become apostate. Uh, As in fact, we find here, the wrath of God is being revealed because of these things. And so as a preacher and as church members, as people, uh, we 
need to acknowledge in our own lives uh, what we do and what has been done that justifies the wrath of God. And when God clearly reveals that in Scripture, uh, we need to acknowledge it. We need to preach it. We need to proclaim it. Why? Because we care about people. We love people. Friends don't let friends drive drunk, right? Friends don't let friends experience the wrath of God, if at all possible. We uh, warn people to flee from the wrath of God because there is an alternative. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can receive by faith if we'll simply admit that we have sin that needs to be confessed, that needs to be turned from and trust in Christ alone. For this reason, verse 26 For this reason of rejecting God's revelation of himself, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, again, this is is the wrath of God um, experienced in the sin itself. Or as Oscar Wilde has said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Far be it from us to to want and to allow... um, the wrath of God being experienced in this time. We want personally, we want others to not experience that because we love and we care for them. Now, for the third time in our text, the Apostle Paul says God gave them over. And what we find here in response to God giving them over is a list of 22 things, 22 things. So let's read that. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind not to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, let me say very clearly here that all of these things that I've just mentioned, these 22 things that the Apostle Paul points out, are examples of foolish, darkened hearts and a a debased mind every bit as much as homosexuality and lesbianism is. You You understand? Again, this is us. This is a description of humanity, and all of these things are an expression of God giving them over to a debased mind not to do what is done. These 22 things, I mean, if um, I could do a sermon series on that, we could take it through 22 weeks on this passage. That would not be a very cheery sermon series, would it? Um, And so I'm not going to take 22 weeks to go through all of these 22 items. I'm just going to touch on a couple of them uh, by way of reference. The first is covetousness. The Bible uh, says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness covetousness means I'm unhappy, I'm unthankful, I'm discontent with what God has given me. I want something more. In Mark chapter 7, 21, Jesus 
speaks of all of these things that are um, that come out of our hearts. For from within our out of our heart, the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Second thing I'd like to highlight is in verse 30, we see that disobedience to parents is listed there. I remember the first time I was really reading through Romans chapter 1 with any kind of uh, thoughtfulness. And I'm reading through this whole long list of all these evil things, you know, murder and this and that and disobedience to parents. It it didn't seem like it really was in the same category. Uh, And yet, listen to what Jesus said uh, to a group of religious people in his day. Um, about the fact that they were not honoring their father and mother. He said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Jesus is referring to a practice in his day where these religious people would uh, take their money and say, this money is devoted to God, and uh, therefore I can't touch the bank account. And so I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. I'd really like to help you out. I know you're, you're running into some uh, financial shortages. Uh, I do, if only I could, but I've devoted it uh, to God. And Jesus says no. Uh, This is your tradition, but the word of God says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. There's actually the death penalty associated with reviling uh, mother and father and dishonoring them. We see this line here at the end of the section that uh, they were given over to that which is worthy of death, something that they, they knew of, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give special approval to those who practice them. In what sense are these things worthy of death? Well, we know the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Any sin is death. But here it's talking about them knowing a decree, a righteous decree, and actually knowing that it merits death. Now, is it the case, and maybe it's the case, that God reveals it generally in creation certain, certain things about himself and has written his law on our hearts and that we would not only know the law but even the penalty of it. Uh, but more likely, he's, he's speaking of the decrees of God and some of those decrees of God listed here, not all of them, but some of them, had the penalty of death listed in the Old Testament. Here's what I think is going on in this passage. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans. He's writing to theoretical Gentile Christians and theoretical Jewish Christians. And by uh, extension, he's writing to us as Jews or Gentiles, people who have the Word of God and people that don't have the Word of God. And he begins and he talks about idolatry and how God gave them over, and, and uh, the, the Jewish uh, listeners to this would be saying, you tell them, Paul, 
Those, those pagans, they're really bad. You know, they're idolatrous and, and uh, oh yeah, and then sexual immorality. Oh yeah, that's, that's really, that's a pagan society. That's bad, Paul. You, you give it to them. And then he turns to these list of 22 things. And what, now they're not exclusive. Of course, Gentiles have problems with all these things too. But it's very reminiscent of the Old Testament word of God. And it's referring to the decrees of God and knowing the death penalty associated with some of these decrees. And I think what they would be doing at that point as they would be hearing this read or reading this would be going, you tell them, Paul, you tell them, Paul, you tell them, Paul, disobedient parents. Ooh, this is about me. This isn't about them out there. This is about me. I am the them that the Apostle Paul is referring to. We see that explicitly stated. Very next, here's a little preview of next week. The very first verse, what follows here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's a description of us, Jew or Gentile, all humanity. And Paul's talking about idolaters. So, the, Jew, the Jews were not idolaters, right? Didn't they have a point there? This is about Gentiles, not about Jews. Let me ask you, where did the Apostle Paul get his language of God giving them over in response to their idolatry? Well, yes, it was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time, though, that that reference has been made. We go back to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 81, in reference to the Israelites. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. He used that exact same language related to the children of Israel. Again, Romans 1, 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Or another example in the book of Acts, reference to the golden calf incident in the Old Testament. Make for yourselves, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. Again, we can be idolaters without setting up a statue in front of us. I'm going to read Colossians 3, 5 again that makes reference to that. And then I'm going to read the following verse. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming because of idolatry. And we're a bunch of idolaters, both Jews and Gentiles, people that have the written word of God and people that don't have the written word of God. Here's just another example of how pervasive idolatry is in our everyday life. Tim Keller is talking about lying as a sign of idolatry. 
He says, first ask the question, why am I lying in this particular situation? The reason we lie or do any sin is because at that moment there is something we feel that we simply must have, and so we lie. One typical reason that we lie, though it is by no means the only one, is because we are deeply fearful of losing face of someone's approval. That means the sin under the sin of lying is idolatry. At that moment, human approval. If we break the commandment against false witness, it is because we are breaking the first commandment against idolatry. We are looking more to human approval than to Jesus as our source of worth, meaning, and happiness. So the upshot is we are really bad. We are really bad. We're really that bad. But the good news is really good. It's really good news, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's being revealed, but we have a way that the wrath of God can be removed from us and placed on Jesus Christ. He became the cursed one for us. His righteousness was granted to us in God's eyes simply by faith and receiving it as a gift. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So God can be loving and wrathful at the same time. In fact, his greatest expression of love was in the display of his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. Where Jesus willingly gave his life up and the father sent the son so that we might experience his love and the wrath of God would be lifted from us and placed on Christ, our substitute. Perhaps today, for the very first time, God is graciously opening your heart. The scales are falling off your eyes. In your mind, you're going, I realize that I am unrighteousness. I am unrighteous. And this this sinfulness is something that, that is a reflection of my rejection of God and my suppression of him and how he's revealed himself to me and I'm I'm sorry for that and I and I want to turn from that and confess it and trust in Jesus. The Bible says at the moment that you trust in Jesus as you place your faith in him you are right with God. The wrath of God is lifted from you forever. And so receive a righteousness that God has given you from outside of yourself. Right now, by simply trusting in your heart in Jesus Christ. It, it can be that you'll pray a prayer, and no doubt you would pray a prayer eventually as you have this ongoing relationship with God who loves you. But it's a matter of trust in what he's done for you. And for those of us who have already come into that relationship with God, and we know what it means to have the wrath of God removed from us, we find that this text still challenges us because it shows areas of idolatry in our lives that have resulted in certain of these uh, unrighteous acts that God has listed here. And so perhaps God has touched 
in your heart, in your mind, even today, something where you need to go to God and say, I realize that Christ has died for this unrighteous act in my life, and I confess that. And I know that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just and will forgive us, forgive me my sins, and know that that's true. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. You can experience it right now. This is the day of salvation. And so let's sing of the wonder of that reality in Christ alone. The gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Let's stand and sing together.